Hey, welcome back to Noggin Notes. This is the podcast portion of Noggin Notes. If you haven't downloaded the app, please do so. It's a great way to track your emotions and your thoughts. Noggin Notes is sponsored by Zephyr Wellness, the company that I co-own in Reno, Nevada, and Sparks, Nevada, and Lovelock, Nevada, and previously in Silver Springs, Nevada, and Carson City, Nevada. Uh, But we closed those offices, and now we just have three. Check out ZephyrWellness.org if you want to learn more. Um, Otherwise, this is a podcast that I just decided to do because it was so prevalent in my life. It's about some nuances of ethics that I think often escape people and uh, maybe don't necessarily register the way they should. I did it for both, uh, I'm sorry, clinicians and clients. So whether or not you're a consumer of counseling services or you're a deliverer of counseling services, I think you could benefit from this. I could have gone on for probably four or five hours on ethics that we overlook but I decided to keep it to about 30, 35 minutes, and I hope you enjoy it. I'm going to stop talking now and just let you enjoy it, but not without a sincere, heartfelt thank you for listening. I truly, truly thank you. Uh, means a lot to me, and I'm not going to tell you much, but we have some really, really cool interviews upcoming, uh, and they are of an international nature. There's going to be at least three of them, and possibly four. And man, that stuff fires me up. But in the meantime, enjoy my soliloquy about counseling ethics. And I hope that uh, if you're not familiar with the profession, this uh, doesn't make you pass out while you're listening to it from lack of interest. (laughs) This is Subtle Nuanced Counseling Ethics. Enjoy. Somebody wrote in recently to me asking, actually it was over text message, I don't want to pretend like a, somebody's sending me a fan mail when they're not, but it was, it was actually a, it was a sort of a fan, it was a friend of mine, and uh, he texted me and said, hey, um, I had this experience with uh, my counselor, and um, what do you think? And without going into great details, I immediately thought, that's really unethical. Um it was an experience in another state, so there wasn't much I can do about it. Those of you who've been listening for a little while know that I am presently serving as chair of my state licensing board. So what I encouraged that uh, my friend to do was to write to that state licensing board um, and bounce it off of them to see if that was a complaint worth filing against this particular licensee. But in my estimation, it was absolutely worth it, and um, I don't I don't think the person should be practicing. I'm not going to get into the, the details of it because it could be a little too specific, and uh, I don't want to give anything away. But what it prompted me to do was uh, think about doing an, a podcast on ethics and the ethics of counseling. So before everybody's eyes roll back in their head and turn the radio off, <laughs> I, I want to make this about the consumer's opinion, uh, version or perspective of, of what ethics should be, not necessarily the clinician. But if you're a clinician and you're listening, I think this will be beneficial for you. So let me kick off with a scenario that happens all the time, and we have all gone through it. If you've been in this field for any time at all, uh, and I'll just put any time at uh, two years, uh, so not any time, but, but if you've been in here for, for two years or so, and especially if you've worked in an agency-type setting, even if that's a shared space among different colleagues, uh, you've, you've probably experienced what I'm about to describe. Um, you finish session, you walk your client up to the front, you're continuing to talk about the client's issues, 
and you open the door to the lobby uh, or you walk into the lobby or wherever the public may be and somebody's sitting out there. Now, it seems harmless enough, but what you've done, if you're the clinician, is you've inadvertently breached that person's confidentiality if you're talking about clinical matters. Now, if you're just talking about the weather or when they're going to set up their next appointment, that doesn't count. That's not an ethics breach. It's not a, it's not a privacy breach. It's not a confidentiality violation. But if you're talking about how they can uh, really use the journaling technique that you gave them to keep track of their thoughts in, uh, say, a, a, a mobile app, Noggin Notes, for example, uh, shameless plug, and that conversation carries out into the lobby, now you've breached all those things. And the person sitting in there in the lobby listening to you talk to your client, as harmless though it may seem, on the way out, now probably thinks, do you talk to me or about me in front of other people the way that you just did this person? And so it has a real chilling effect on the next person walking in. They may not want to share a bunch. They may uh, they may simply be distracted thinking about what the other person exiting the agency or the lobby is going through, and they can't fully focus on their own clinical time. So I want to pay some heed to that, along with some other very seemingly innocuous things that happen in our profession. And I also want to spend some time talking about how we can work to make this profession cool and trendy without violating those same ethical principles. So I mentioned at the outset that this would be also for the uh, audience as well as some colleagues who may be clinicians listening. What I want the audience to hear is that if you encounter a situation like I just described or any of the other ones that are about to that I'm about to put forth, it's not your cue to go screaming to the licensing board to have your uh, clinician's license jerked. What we want in this field, just like we would want from our clients, is an ever-progressing evolution of continual personal growth and consciousness. We want to build our own awareness so that we just keep getting better and better and better, right? So we don't want to come down like a ton of bricks on somebody who inadvertently broached uh, confidentiality or broke an ethical rule. Uh, We want them to learn from it, just like we want our clients to learn from their uh, poor decision-making or mistakes or what have you. So if you're a client and you experience something that that sets you uh, a little bit uneasy or you have some alarm bells go off in your head about, you know, maybe or maybe not that was appropriate, go ahead and bring it up with your clinician first. Uh, And I will just go ahead and make a blanket statement and say, make a should remark. If your clinician is worth anything, they should receive that feedback well And try to have a dialogue with you about what the offense was and how they might correct it or at least explain why it may or may not have been unethical and uh, what they can do about it. And then also tell you what you can do about it. A good clinician who is transparent and open to feedback will also have on hand his or her personal, not personal, but professional ethical codes at the ready. So for example, I belong to the National Board for Certified Counselors and that NBCC, you can find out more at nbcc.org. They have an ethical code. The American Association for Marriage and Family Therapy, uh, which I belong to for about eight years but don't anymore, has its own ethical code. The National Board of Social Work or National Association of Social Workers has its own ethical code. And that would be binding upon clinical social workers. The American Counseling Association has its own ethical code. Uh, 
uh, and so on and so forth. Now, there's also ethical codes for substance abuse counselors, psychiatrists, psychologists, and I'm not going to get into all of them. But what I will say is that most of them have a very common thread. So if you pick up one, you're pretty much picking up the others as well. So any clinician who's licensed by his or her state should have at a ready uh, access one of their ethical codes. Um, because of the work that I do with my licensing board in the state, I have pretty intimate knowledge of most of the ethical codes. And I will tell you that because they, they all mirror each other so closely and one is virtually as good as the other, uh, they don't necessarily speak that way in law. So um, that's why I say go to, the eth- go to the professional ethical codes rather than the laws because sometimes the laws of the states just simply pay a nod to the professional ethical codes or they'll just pick out some of the, the most important parts like don't sleep with your clients and they'll put that in there. Uh, we all know not to do that. It still happens, unfortunately, um, but, you know, such is life. So, uh, and I don't want to just breeze that over like it's no big deal. It's a very big deal, but I don't want to spend any time on the obvious stuff. I want to spend some time on the more, um, less obvious and subliminal stuff. So don't go to the laws necessarily because they tend to have more um, technical language that governs the uh the governance of the profession, if you will, how to administer licenses, what constitutes a, an ethical violation, how to file those complaints, uh, how, how the boards get appointed, that kind of stuff. It'll just confuse you and, and bog you down. Instead, just go to the, 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 the websites and you can just Google counseling ethics and almost, you know, you'll, you'll get a laundry list. So any of those will do. I've spent enough time on that. I'm going to move on. I'll give you another situation. Uh, there's a difference in our profession between what's called directive therapy or directive counseling and then non-directive counseling. Uh, there's, there is a line, it's faint, but it's there, and it doesn't necessarily mean that it shouldn't be crossed. So what we are often taught in school when we're going through the, the counseling education process is that we want to be non-directive. We want to reflect we want to be present, we want to validate, but we don't necessarily want to give suggestions or uh, solutions or advice. And I regularly tell people, my clients specifically, but but people generally on places like podcasts, I'll say, I'm not in the advice-giving profession. And there's a, a litany of reasons for that, but, it, but a couple of them are, if I give you advice and you take it and it works, I've solved your problem, not you. That's problematic because it could create a dependency, and I don't want a dependency. I mean, it's good for the pocketbook because I keep you on my calendar, but that's that's unethical too. Um, the second thing that's that's major in my opinion is that if I give you advice and you take it and it doesn't work, I now have caused harm, which is one of our uh, chief ethical precepts. Uh, they are mal- uh, non-maleficence, which is don't do harm, beneficence, meaning do some some good, help somebody. Fidelity, meaning um, you know, be be true, be honest, be transparent. Justice, meaning do the right thing and act on behalf of your clients if need be. You know, do some advocacy work for policy and so forth. And then autonomy. Now they're all supposed to be be equal, but I believe autonomy is probably the most important one because I think it gets violated the most. And autonomy simply means that as a clinician, I honor the client's ability to make decisions for him or herself. That's it. Um, autonomy can be defined a million ways, but but that's basically the principle of it. The reason that autonomy gets violated a lot is because 
clinicians slip into directive therapy without knowing it. Now, directive therapy, like I said, is not a bad thing, and you definitely want to cross that line on purpose uh, regularly if need be, but you want to do it on purpose, not unconsciously. So something that might sound like directive therapy um, that could be unethical is, yeah, I think, I think you should leave that, that relationship. I would, I would never say that to somebody. Even if they asked me directly, they'd say, do you think I should leave the relationship? I'd, I'd flip it back on them and say, you give me your answer. Tell me what you think. And if they're really, really stuck, I would do a technique that's called rolling with the resistance or uh, resting in ambivalence. If they're back and forth, that's ambivalence. But if they're resisting, you just go with it. Go, and it sounds like you're not ready to leave the relationship. And then I go, well, but I really am. Because, well, it sounds like you really are ready to leave the relationship. And that's a technique borrowed from something called motivational interviewing. Some of you may be familiar with it. But what I would never do is say, I definitely think you should leave the relationship. That's me giving them my solution through my lens. I would. I don't want to do that. I don't. I don't know the person. I'm not them. I, I'm not living their life. Uh, so of course it makes sense from my worldview, but what I want to do is help them, help them make sense from their worldview. And I just don't possess that they do. So I want to keep dumping it back into their lab. That would be directive therapy. That's unethical because I'm telling them how to live their life and I'm doing it through my lens. Now here's some directive therapy that would be ethical. If the person says, I think I, I think I might want to leave the relationship. I'll go, well, then maybe you should. That's directive. I'm telling them that they have an option. Maybe, maybe they should. And I'm agreeing with them. I'm aligning with them. I'm validating that. Now, if they push back and go, well, maybe I, maybe I shouldn't, I might equally say, well, maybe you should stay in the relationship. That's directive. But it's also not telling them what to do. I'm just, I'm just simply reflecting what they're doing. And I think where clinicians get a little bit twisted around with this, especially young clinicians when they're fresh out of school, is they believe that non-directive therapy is simply to sit there and shrug. And that's not at all what it is. You can moderate your tone of voice. You can, you can um, use different language. You can reframe. You can do all these techniques that we're all taught in order to help the client gain more insight and more clarity and more intentionality to the decisions that they make without telling them what to do. So, if you're a client and you're feeling this uh, pressure from your, your therapist or your counselor to do certain things because you want to make the therapist happy or you're, you don't want to make them mad at you for doing the right thing, that's probably a good indicator that you need to stop that session and ask, them for, ask your counselor for clarification as to where they're coming from and what their intentionality is. And it's always 100% of the time okay to say, hey, help me out with your intentionality when you said that thing you just said to me. And if the clinician doesn't know, uh, heavily reconsider that, that therapeutic relationship, uh, especially if it happens repeatedly. Uh, once in a while is fine because we all just kind of slip into unconscious function here and there. And that's why we want to be ever growing through the, the counseling process, even even those of us who are professional counselors and we're licensed and we have we have degrees and, and so forth. We're ever growing too. So don't don't hammer us just because, you know, we, we said something that, that set you off. Ask us about it. And chances are pretty good that we'll say, you know what, I'm sorry. I I don't know what I was thinking there. I, I think maybe I I didn't shake off the residue from the other session, or maybe I was thinking of my mom, or like maybe I'm just hungry and I'm not really attentive right now. Uh, and then you can move forward. If it happens repeatedly, that's probably a sign that somebody's not uh, self-evaluative enough to be present to give you neutral feedback rather than 
uh, purposeful directional feedback. I'm going to take a quick break, and uh, we'll come back after the break to talk more about the the concept of ethics, how you can identify what ethics look like uh, on the good side versus the bad side. And uh, I'll use a couple more vignettes to illustrate this, and I'll also talk about the analytic self if we have enough time. You're listening to the Noggin Notes podcast, and I'm Jake. Okay, we're back, and we're talking about ethics in counseling. This is a, this is a very brief overview. It's not meant to be a, an ethics class. If I were teaching an ethics class, it would probably take two semesters. Uh, I know those of you who are listening who went to grad school for counseling are like, what do you mean two semesters? Mine was only a semester. Well, that's how I would teach ethics. I would take two semesters, and then I would teach law, and that would also be two semesters because, frankly, I just don't think we get enough of it, uh, and I don't think we get it deep enough. But my personal opinion aside— I'm just going to cover a couple more um, anecdotal examples of, of ethical um, nuances that may occur in a session or within an agency setting that may just kind of blow by everybody's radar without being noticed. And um, I want to start by talking about something that, that happens frequently, which is uh, the difference between consultation and gossip. So we want to be able to consult with our colleagues about matters of a clinical nature relating to our clients. That's how we get better. That's how we provide better service. And chances are pretty strong that if you're receiving your counseling services from an agency as opposed to an individual who is, you know, just has a shingle tacked up in private practice and doesn't work with anybody else, and I want to be very, very clear about that. I really mean doesn't work with anyone else. I don't mean a, con- a conglomeration or a group of private practitioners sharing a workspace, that's, that's more or less an agency setting. Um, it's, just, it's just structured differently for business purposes and so forth. But uh, this is really important. The person who's in private practice and doesn't necessarily interact with the outside world or have uh, colleagues right across the hallway with whom they can staff cases is more likely to slip into a siloed manner of thinking. And by silo, I mean, you know, a tube or like, you know, Bury, you know, you bury things underground like missiles launched from a silo, or you store corn in a silo. It's just, it's insulated, it's it's um, isolated, and it's separated away from everything else. So, if we're working in silos, we don't get a lot of growth, we don't get a lot of feedback, and even in this day and age of technological communications that are you know sweeping the the planet, there are people who just are very insular in their um, workspace, and that leads to very insular thinking more often than not. So. Agency settings, if you're a clinician listening, you're probably throwing up a little bit in your mouth because uh, agency has become a a bad word in our profession. Zephyr Wellness and a few others are trying to change that by structuring our our philosophies differently. But what an agency setting does, what a group practice setting does, is it gives access to colleagues' feedback and input. And you'll get a variety of of answers and, and inputs and conceptualizations and feedback when you have diverse groups of practitioners operating together. So here's the difference between gossip and consultation. Consultation or staffing uh, is done intentionally for the sole purpose of clinical uh, growth and insight. Gossip is, hey, you're not going to believe what my client just told me. That's not okay. That's not cool. It's unethical. And it has no clinical purpose. Me going next door and saying, hey, I'm really stuck with this uh, 14-year-old who is you know, engaging in these behaviors I've never heard of before. Can you help me out? That's consultation. And when we consult, we should be very mindful not to share you know, 
especially if we're in a, a private practice group setting, don't share specific names, uh, identifying information, and so forth. Now, in an agency setting, if you're an employee of that agency, you're generally covered by agency policy that says the client is a client of the agency, not necessarily the clinician, and you're protected in your conversations about that client. What happens, though, in agencies is gossip because the, the overall um, feel of the agency is that because every every patient or client is a is a client of the agency, we can all talk about them all the time, and that's not at all okay. It's against HIPAA. It's against ethic. It's against a lot of things. And in some agency settings, like big hospitals, hospitals are an agency. They've got a lot of practitioners and a lot of patients. Their software, where records are kept, there are a lot of the electronic health record system, often has password protected um, logins. When a clinician or a physician or some entity, some employee of that agency or that hospital has to log in and treat another employee, they may be from a different department, different shift. You know, they may never even cross, especially if it's a statewide hospital uh, or like the, uh, the the division of health services for for a state or or you know the the veterans administration. There's lots of ways that people could poke into each other's records. Um, but you don't want to do that unless there's a clinically necessary reason to do so. Because if you, if you just open up just anybody's record to poke around and, and see what's going on, that's unethical. There's, there's no reason to it. And that becomes tantamount to gossip. So whether or not you're actually verbalizing it and words are, and sounds are coming out of your mouth in the hallway, or whether you're just poking through the hard drive or the cloud, both are unethical if you're not doing it for clinical reasons. Um, I can tell you that because my wife works as a nurse, at a local hospital here in Reno, it's a very large hospital. There's like 5,000 employees. They're they're in different locations across the, uh, northern Nevada. Um, those same hospital employees get their treatment at that hospital. So of course you're going to encounter people you know who could potentially have access to your records. What we're doing is we're trusting the ethic that they're not going to go in there and go. Psst, did you notice what our manager was in for? You know, like we don't want to do that. That's not that's not cool. It's not ethical, and you should lose your license for that because it inherently means that the patients can't trust you. Uh, so we want to be mindful of that. And when we're having conversations in the hallway about clients, we want to be intentional about them. We want to have the doors closed. And we want to protect patient privacy while we're having those those interactions. And we want to be intentional about why we're having them. So that's the difference between consultation and gossip. Similarly, for the for the clients, if you're listening, because you're probably glazing over right now, uh, hearing me talk to talk like I'm talking to clinicians. If you're a client and you're in uh, mental health care somewhere. You may have signed a release of information, or commonly known as an ROI. And on that ROI, for uh, it, it, re- it has a bunch of language, but it specifically releases us to talk to other people about you who are outside of the organization, typically. Those might be social workers. If you're uh, working with social services, say if you're a foster parent or if you're a parent um, dealing with social services and you're Maybe you're struggling with a with a custody issue, and you're trying to get you know regain custody from the state for your kid, um, you know, because there's a CPS case open or something like that. Um, there may be also releases of information for juvenile probation to to for us to talk to the probation officer about your child. We may be talking to psychiatrists, psychologists, primary care physicians. Uh, wraparound workers, um, even other relatives, maybe uh, caregivers who 
they take care of your child because you are working all the time, and so you can't necessarily deliver your kid to the the appointment, but you get your next-door neighbor to or your aunt or something like that. So we'll have these releases of information, and on there should be language that says, this is only for the for the clinically necessary use that is stated, meaning I can't just go call up a juvenile probation officer and run my mouth about how difficult the, the, the kid is that I'm treating. That's not appropriate. Now, if I call the probation officer and report to them the progress or the lack thereof, that's appropriate. That's, that's clinically appropriate. So you usually will put an agency's name on there, like, you know, Washoe County Juvenile Services. Well, that's, that's pretty broad. That's hundreds of employees. But it doesn't give me as a clinician license to go talk to just any old random secretary because they work at juvenile services. Um, what it does is it allows me not to have to fill out new paperwork if the probation officer gets assigned a new case. That's why we do the agency name, not necessarily uh, probation officer's name. And then again, even if I'm talking to the probation officer, I don't want to just mindlessly ramble about every kid that's on my caseload. I want to be very specific and very precise, and I want to be very intentional about the clinical reasons that I'm talking to this person. So under all those circumstances, it's very rare that we would have just random conversations about clients that we're treating with people, even if we have releases of information. So uh, if you're the client and word gets back to you that um, you, you know somebody heard something about your kid uh, and it seems fishy to you, again, ask your clinician how that came to be, and hopefully you'll get a stray answer, and they'll they'll you know give you some intentionality and say, well, yeah, I, I, I called them the other day to to discuss, you know, his attendance or something. And then hopefully you'll go, oh, okay, that makes sense. That makes sense. Uh, I forgot that I wrote that, you know, signed that release of information in the beginning or something like that. So keep that in mind. And clinicians, uh, use your discretion when you go talk to people about your clients. Okay. So the last thing I wanted to discuss was the analytic self and how it can help you. And then I'm going to use another anecdotal example here. So the analytic self is a concept that I th- I actually don't know where it originates. Uh, I give credit to Christian Conti because he put it in, he taught it to me, but then he also put it in his book, Advanced Techniques for Counseling and Psychotherapy. But the way the analytic self works is if you picture yourself having a conversation with somebody else, there's a back and forth uh, exchange. Now, in your mind, picture a little uh, circle. So you picture yourself as a circle and then the other person as another circle. So you, you two are having a conversation. Now picture a third circle just, just above the two. And that one is is your analytic self, and it's like a disinterested third person who's just observing the interaction, but also watching every reaction and then giving you feedback. So it, it improves your communication. Now along the way, you're going to be mindful of what's going through your head, your impressions, uh, how your information is being received, facial uh, signals being sent by the other person, body language. This, by the way, the, the facial expression thing is why the emotions are so important. Listen to the emotions podcast if you would. Um, and all that is being processed by you, the 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 discusser, the speaker, the, the the person who's in the interaction. Okay, we use this in our field because it helps us maintain uh, a a little bit of a distance from the client so that we don't get into a ping pong back and forth, uh, you know, buddy, buddy conversation. We want to maintain a clinical lens while we're, while we're having our conversations and the analytic self helps us do this. 
I'm going to do a, a whiteboard presentation on a YouTube video at some point about this, and it'll be much clearer. But for now, just just envision that you have this this separate entity that's also you. Uh, <laughs> I like the Kermit the Frog things with the uh, the hood on. Me, also me. Uh, so the also you is observe. <laughs> I don't know why that's so funny to me. Um, but the also you is observing you having this interaction and giving you feedback about the interaction so that it can improve your communication. We want to be mindful of this while we're communicating, and we want to envision ourselves as though we're hearing everything everybody else is also potentially hearing. So think back to the lobby conversation earlier when um, when the, the, the clinician walked the client up to the lobby and they were continuing to talk about uh, journaling or whatever it was about the anxiety. If I'm in my analytic self, my analytic self is noticing everybody else whose ears could potentially hear that. And I want to be mindful of the words coming out of my mouth and how they're landing on those ears. And then I want to pretend how those ears could hear those words. So if it's other clinicians, it may sound like I don't have good boundaries if I'm walking my client all the way up to the door and out to their car. It's like, well, what are you doing, Jake? The session ended. Let them, let them walk out on their own. My primary care physician doesn't do that. It's usually like, yep, you look good close the clipboard and you know walk out the door and then it's up to me to go check out at the front desk they don't just walk up there continuing the conversation that's that's poor boundaries is what it is so um it, that may be the clinician's understanding the office manager who may be checking them out may be just wondering you know why i can't let this person go and why i'm continuing to bend their ear while my next client is waiting um and, you know his name's Rob, by the way. <laughs> Rob may be sitting there going, "Come on, Jake, move along. You're, you're delaying people, and it's that's also unethical. It's not it's not unethical that you'd report it to a licensing board, but I just particularly like to be on time because I think people are owed that courtesy. So I don't want to eat into somebody else's session by protracting the previous session. Uh, time time means something to me, and, and appointments mean something, so I want to be punctual about that. And then, of course, there's the issue of who's who's in the lobby listening to that, and am I breaching? you know, HIPAA, uh, confidentiality laws, privacy laws, all that stuff. So um, we want to be in our analytic selves thinking about how our conversations are tumbling into the ears of everybody around us. And if you're a client listening to this, it may not have particular application to uh, your therapy, but it may if you're on an airplane and you're having a loud conversation and maybe you're getting a little boorish or opinionated, um, you may be offending the sensitivities of the people around you. So keep that in mind and, you know, do unto others as you'd have done unto you. And if you don't want your, your sensitivities offended by somebody else's uh, loose and free speech, maybe moderate your own, you know, so slip into your analytic self and say, how is what's coming out of my mouth potentially affecting the eight or 10 other people around me in this, in this setting, uh, especially if they happen to be children and you're telling, you know, stories about the fraternity growing up and in, in college and, you know, how you, you drank too much one night and made an embarrassment of yourself that like children probably don't need that going into their ears. Maybe your buddy sitting next to you does, but that's, you know, not the only audience there. So uh, that's how the analytic self can help that. And then finally, the uh, topic I wanted to end on is is non-judgment. Now, we've, we've talked a little bit in previous podcasts about being non-judgmental. I know I write a lot about it. I post a lot. The concept of non-judgmentalism basically says uh, you don't really know what somebody else is going through, so you're not really in a position to say whether it's good or bad. Now, Morally, we can evaluate things and say whether or not they're good or bad. That's fine. But the imposition of one's morals upon another to say as though that person is a bad person, 
that's where we draw the line. That's that's judgment. And similarly, when we box people up and and put them in put a label on them and try to pretend that we know everything that there is to know about them without really knowing the depth of who they are, that's judgmental too. Let me give you an example. I don't particularly like labels, and if you've been around me for any time at all, you know that I don't use them if I can avoid it. Um, and if I do use them, it's usually to illustrate a point. I've, I've worked myself to the point now where I, um, I'm pretty good about almost never using labels. And where this came from was I went through some dialectical behavior therapy training. I went through an intensive course uh, back when I was working in an inpatient hospital and I was fortunate enough for them for the uh, the hospital administration to send me through this like 64 or 67 hour course. It was it was really good uh, across several weekends, and I got really well trained. But then we came back, and part of doing dialectical behavior therapy (DBT) as they call it is you have to have a consultation team. If you're fully adherent to the DBT concept, you have a consultation team, and it meets regularly. And in that consultation team. Usually what should be present is something called a judgment bell that someone will ring if they hear a judgmental phrase. Now, in that judgment bell is a lot of awareness. And you can and I have a really nice one. It's actually made uh, by one of my colleagues uh, who, who works at Zephyr. He's a woodworking genius, and uh, his name's Dave Reed. He's been on the podcast before. Uh, but what Dave did is he took the top of a sprinkler uh, valve that broke. I brought it in. It's brass. It's uh, And it just had a nice ring to it. And I just kind of didn't want to throw it away. And he ended up turning it into a, a bell for me and created this cool mallet. And anyway, um, I have the judgment bell around and I use it. And I don't use it on myself so much because I can already hear my, my bells ringing when judgmental phrases come out of my mouth. So I'm starting to use it on my interns and my students. And I say use it on because it's a, it's a form of discipline. Um, and I don't mean discipline like punishment. Punishment and discipline are two different things. We'll get into that in a different podcast. But um, discipline has its roots in the word uh, disciple, which means to teach. And so I'm, I'm using this upon these, these folks to teach them how to be more aware of their judgment. So here's a label that's common. And it's fading, thankfully. But uh, addict, addict is a label because it's a noun, it's a pronoun really, uh, and it's used to describe a person and it's very limiting as most labels are. Uh, once, one, one time Christian Conti said to me, to define is to confine. So if you define somebody, you're basically confining them to that definition. And when you, de- when you confine somebody, it doesn't give them a lot of chance to be anything else. So if I say, he is an addict... I use the is, which sounds very permanent in English because we don't have two versions like in other languages where there's a temporary and a permanent. Ours always sounds permanent. He is an addict. Addict is a definition, and it's it comes out as an all-encompassing definition. And if I heard that in staffing, yeah, I'm dealing with this addict right now, I'd ding him. And they'd look at me, and I'd say, what'd you say? And you know, hopefully my students would respond with, you said addict, that's a label. And I go, yes, what should you say instead? Well, what you should be saying instead is person who struggles with addiction. That's what you should say because they're a person first. And this is not a semantical, fluffy, leftist-leaning, uh, we're all you know hippies uh, type of philosophy. This is a very practical, 
honoring of the human experience and the very soul and depth of a person that lies well beneath the stated outward behaviors. Addiction may be an outward behavior, but God forbid I would get defined by my outward behaviors. I could be defined a lot of ways if that were the case. Virtually any job I've ever held or any club I've ever uh, participated in or any uh, sport that I've ever played. I mean, you know, baseball player, uh, student government kid, frat boy, uh, nerd, um, a- anything like you know, therapist is a label, and yet it doesn't define who I am. Might define my job, maybe, but also in addition to therapist, I'm a consultant and uh, I'm a, I'm a mentor and I'm a teacher and I'm a I'm a supervisor. I'm a I'm a boss. I'm, I'm you know I'm a lot of things. I'm a volunteer. So. We don't want to use labels, and we especially don't want to use them in the counseling profession because it's so limiting. And we don't want to limit people because, if you've again, if you've listened to me for any period of time, hopefully the message has come across that I believe that people are deeper than their outward behaviors. And, and if I label somebody and I limit them, I've just denied their depth. And who wants to live a shallow life? I want I want to be I want to be honored for my depth, and I want somebody who honors my depth. So if you're a client listening to this and you're in a counseling relationship and somebody's constantly throwing labels around at you or at other people, he's he's sociopathic, he's a narcissist, she's a borderline, he's bipolar, that kid's ADHD. Those those are all labels, they're all limiting. They all happen to be diagnoses also, but they're used inappropriately. I would much rather encourage you to push back a little bit and say, "Hey, you know, instead of saying that I'm bipolar, can you please say I, I'm struggling with bipolar disorder? It's much gentler, but it's not just simply for the sake of euphemism and 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 um, and less less abrasiveness on the ears. These words have value. If you're struggling with something, it means that eventually you can overcome it. And I realize that's probably not popular speech in a few circles too. But I simply don't. I fundamentally don't believe that people can't heal. If I did, our profession would cease to exist, and I've said that before too. So I would encourage you, as a client, if you're hearing this judgmental, narrow language, push back on it. Ask your clinician to change his or her language. And if you don't get an affirmative answer out of that, or you don't get some satisfaction, fire them. We work for you, not the other way around. And that that brings me to my last point is the dependence. I mentioned it before about giving somebody an answer and having it work and then them coming back and seeking more more answers, more advice, more uh, more directive therapy, right? If we create a dependence upon you, it's unethical. And whether that dependence is you depending on me for uh, advice and guidance such that you can never terminate your relationship or whether it's <laughs> a dependence where I'm depending on you to fill my calendar – that's problematic too. One of the ethical codes that are, is is common across all of the, the ones that I m- mentioned at the outset is that you do not continue service with somebody unless it's reasonably clear that the client is benefiting. So this is for both parties now, clients and clinicians. Clinicians, do not continue to carry somebody on your calendar unless it's reasonably clear that they're benefiting. And clients, if you're not benefiting terminate the relationship, fire us. Now, hopefully you don't jump right to that. Hopefully you have a conversation about, hey, you know, this isn't working for me. It's been a few weeks. I kind of feel like I'm spinning my wheels. Can we revisit my treatment plan? Can we look at my goals? Can we look at my objectives? And and then re you know reassess and recalculate. 
Um, and don't do it in a judgmental, condescending, nasty way like, you know, you're a terrible counselor because you're not do- giving me what I want. Uh, it's possible the counselor isn't aware of that and they think they're tracking appropriately and you're the one who's not getting what you want. The inverse can happen too. Counselor's, you know, adrift and doesn't think anything's happening. And and if you are getting something, please give us that feedback too. Say, hey, this is really working, you know, and give your reasons. We'd like to have that feedback. Um, but try to work together. This should be a collaborative relationship. It shouldn't be a one-way street. I definitely don't advocate for the uh, the empty vessel theory where, you know, the, the all-knowing clinician is just dispensing knowledge into the empty waiting vessel that is the client. That's that's not okay. I should be learning as much from you as you are from me. And uh, and, and hopefully we, we progress, you know, symbiotically. So if you find yourself in a dependent relationship upon your counselor, uh, even if it seems to be working, but you, you just believe you can't ever leave that counselor or that clinician because you don't know what you do without them, that's super unhealthy. It's highly unethical. And uh, you should be learning to stand on your own two feet so that you can recover and live a full, happy life on your own, uh, free from, free from the, the affliction that, that is uh, plaguing you. And please keep in mind that all afflictions are temporary. If they're not, find somebody who believes that they are so that you can heal because none of us de- deserves to live in misery uh, perpetually through the course of our life. Now, if you're struggling with mental illness and living with it and you're not getting treated, that's a different story. But if you're getting treated, especially for many months or years, with no progress, um, seek different help because uh, that's probably an ineffective clinician. And I don't even mean broadly. I mean just for you because that clinician may be super effective for somebody else and it's just a bad fit. So I hope this helps and uh, I hope you found it interesting. I hope you found it useful. And if you feel like reaching out and giving me a... Well, a pat on the back would be nice. I like those. But <laughs> if you want to give some some uh, criticisms or, or a critique, you can do that too. Info at ZephyrWellness.org will reach me. And info at NogginNotes.com will also reach me. Um, thanks for listening as always. It's always humbling to know that people listen. And uh, we'll just keep pumping out content as long as you keep listening. Because I just want a healthy society, man. And... Uh, Maybe this is one way we get there. So on behalf of the Zephyr Wellness family and the Noggin Notes team, thanks a bundle, and we'll chat with you again next week. Bye-bye.